Let me ask you a question. How important is prayer? <laughs> it's pretty important. John, if you could bring that down, maybe just a smidgen, just the volume. Yeah, it is important. And, you know, the Lord wants us to pray. And he didn't just tell us to pray. He modeled it for us when he had before, uh, we have before us today the Lord's Prayer. And so let's read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back and take a look at it. So notice in verse 1 of chapter 17, and remember Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples just hours before he will go to the cross. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. And as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. And for I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have surely known that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. And those whom you have given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me will be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. An amazing prayer, isn't it? An amazing prayer. This has often been referred to in the Bible as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. Just as Isaiah 53 is considered to be the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Jesus, the suffering servant that would come. And that's certainly true. But you know, I like to see the whole Bible as the Holy of Holies. (laughs) But there are certain passages in the Bible, and this is one of them that's really special. It's just really special because, you know, when we think of the Lord's Prayer, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 7, and this is something we know very well. In fact, many of you who have come from maybe Orthodox backgrounds or maybe have come from the Catholic Church, you've, you've recited this prayer, this model prayer, actually, probably ad nauseum to the point where it really doesn't mean anything to you anymore. Um, and, and that's a, something that we have to be really careful of. But people call this Matthew 6, uh, verse 7. Remember, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, he says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. So in this manner, therefore, you ought to pray. And here is the prayer, but this, many have called this the Lord's Prayer. But let me suggest to you that this is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is what we're reading right now in John 17. The one that we're looking at in Matthew 6 is a model prayer. It helps us to keep focused. And so Jesus is giving his disciples a prayer, a model, if you will, to to think about as they go. And sometimes that's good because if you're like me, I can start to pray and my mind is scattered. But if I have a format that I can follow, that can help me. In other words, notice what the, the model prayer starts off with. It starts off with worship. So when you pray, pray in this manner. Therefore, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is that but worship? And then you can spend some time just worshiping the Lord, just extolling how great he is and and just telling him of of how much you love him and, and how great he is and his wonders and his majesty. And then you can move on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's another section, you know, of desiring for the Lord's kingdom to come on the earth. He, the kingdom of God is in us right now, but there's also going to be a time in the millennial reign where it'll be here. And, and physically, Jesus will be present with us. And then to give us our daily bread, you know, thanking him for his provision for our lives, you know, for all the things that he gives us to to help us to survive. You know, a home, uh, air conditioning, heating, especially now. Thank you, Jesus. You know, and all of these wonderful things. Thank him for the things that he's provided. And then, you know, and forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins or our debts. And that's another part of prayer. And you can spend some time on that. Do you see how it's, it's a model, really? And it helps us to keep focus because... Sometimes we can just get unfocused and we just start praying and we're, we don't even know where we're at And at the end. We're just kind of flying all over the place. But a model prayer can be helpful to help us keep things in order and to keep our mind focused on, on that. So that is the model prayer. 
It's a model prayer. But Jesus, go back to John 17 now. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, John 17. And it's an intercessory prayer because Jesus not only prays for himself, we see that in verses 1 through 5. It's a, pray, a prayer that he prays for himself. Yes, Jesus prayed for himself to his Father. And then notice, right around verse 6, uh, many of you, if you have a New King James Version Bible, they've put in the headings already for you, but then it's the, the Jesus prays for his disciples. And so from verse 6 into verse 19, Jesus is praying specifically for them because they were going to undergo certain things after Jesus' departure, and they were going to need everything, every help from heaven they could get. And then finally, Jesus, in verse 19, through the end of the chapter, he prays for all believers, and that includes us. That includes us. And I'll have you notice, too, that when he does pray for his disciples and all believers, really what he's praying for are at least four things. He's praying, certainly, for our preservation, because the world would hate us, and that we would endure through the difficulty of life as Christians. Because this, this world, I don't know if you've noticed, is not very friendly to our Christian faith. And it's increasingly becoming more hostile, and we see that in Canada we see that happening right now. We see that all over the world, actually, and we're one of the last holdouts. I almost kind of see America as one of the last of the few dominoes that need to fall for Satan to have all the world. I mean, he's got it really all in his hands right now, but um, the United States is a stumbling block to his program. And you... You Christians, all of us, we are stumbling blocks. And that's why the Lord will remove us at some point. He's going to remove us. And then the floodgate, there, there will be no resistance whatsoever. Do you realize that? That you and I in the world right now, we are the only resistance from the evil just overtaking this country. You, every one of us in this room, and everyone in sitting pews uh, that are born again in this country, in this world, they are the only thing that's keeping the tidal wave from overcoming them. But the tsunami is coming, folks, because when Jesus comes back for us, the tsunami is going to commence, and it's going to be ugly. You think it's ugly now? You think there's deception now? We haven't seen anything yet. And thank God we won't see what they are going to see, unfortunately. And that's the truth. That's what the Bible tells us. But God wants everybody to, to come to him, that they could escape this moment of trial, this moment of temptation, this moment of wrath that's coming upon the earth. Soon, when the church is removed, we are gonna, the, the world is going to see a wrath of God for a world that has rejected his only means of salvation, Jesus Christ. So Jesus prays for their preservation. He prays also for their sanctification, to be set apart from the world and sanctified and set apart to him. And that's really what the idea is. And unity, he's praying for unity, that we would all have a oneness. Now that doesn't mean that we all have, you know, envelop in, or engage in some kind of ecumenical thing where regardless of the differences and the problems within the churches, it doesn't mean that we just throw down all the doctrine and throw it away and just hold hands and sing, we are the world, we are the children, and have a Coca-Cola. You know, we're not, that's not what God wants. He's got, he's got a remnant, and that remnant is unified. And it's small, comparatively, to the world. But that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't, he doesn't need, uh, he doesn't want all the churches to come together um, uh, with all their mess 
with all their doctrinal mess and think that it's okay. No, he wants his church, his true bride, to stand up and to, and we are unified. Do you know that? Right now, we in this room are unified. If you're a believer in Christ, we have the greatest unity than any other organization, any other entity on the, in the world. Companies and Fortune 500 companies would love to have the unity that you and I have. We haven't had a real a fight, a fist fight. We haven't had, I mean, we have our, our squabbles, but it's because of our immaturity. It's because of my immaturity. But when we're walking in the Spirit, things are, are, are just, there's a unity that's really wonderful. But Jesus here is intercessor. He's interceding. It's called intercessory prayer, and it's the action of intervening on behalf of another. And Jesus intercedes, and he prays for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says, in verse 25, therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is praying for us. He prayed for Peter, he prayed for Judas, he prayed for his disciples, and he says, I am now interceding for you. And he's praying for you right now, yes. And do you think God the Father is gonna answer that prayer? God the Son speaking to God the Father? I think it's going to happen. When Jesus prays for you, you're in good shape. But even the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, the Spirit himself, not herself, not itself. Notice it's a him. Sorry I get on a little excited about this. But, you know, we live in a, a culture where, uh, you know, pronouns are a big deal. And God is not a she, God is not an it. The Bible says he's a he. And so therefore, I'm going to call him he. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to what? The will of God. According to the will of God. But look with me at verse 1 back in our text now. Notice, Jesus spoke these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son and your son may glorify you. Two things to note here. Uh, where is heaven? It's up, right? I mean, wherever you are on the earth, you look up and there's heaven because when Jesus looked up to heaven when he was in Jerusalem or in Israel, he's looking up because that specifies where God's domain is, where his dwelling place is. I love what it says in uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul said, It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ, and Paul is speaking of himself here in the third person, of course, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And this idea of the third heaven is paradise. Jesus called it paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise and the third heaven are one in the same. The third heaven, so three heavens? What's that about? <laughs> well, there's, there's three heavens that we believe there are. There's, uh, there's the earth's atmosphere right above us, the clouds and the cirrus clouds, and all of that is the first heaven. And we read about that in Deuteronomy. Moses speaking to the children of Israel 
before they went into the promised land. He says, but the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven. He's speaking of that first heaven, the rain from heaven, that first sphere above us. And the second heaven is this interplanetary space which inhabits the stars and the moon and all the planets and those things that we can see, the galaxies and all of that. That's the the second heaven. In Genesis 15, verse 5, when God spoke to Abraham, it says, Then he, verse 5 of Genesis 15, Then he, God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, to him, so shall your descendants be. So this interplanetary space is the second heaven, but there's also a third dwelling place, a third heaven, and it's the very dwelling place of God. And it tells us in 1 Kings chapter uh, 8, verse 30, remember as David was uh, passed from the scene, his son Solomon built the temple, and in building the temple, as he dedicated the temple, what did Solomon pray? It says that, Lord, that you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when you pray toward this place, here in heaven, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So we see in Scripture these three different heavens. And when Jesus prayed, notice that he didn't close his eyes. <laughs> At least here he didn't. I mean, you can close your eyes, but you know, when we look at the psalmist, we look at Psalm uh, 123, what did David say? Or the psalmist, excuse me. It says, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. And so the psalmist would look to heaven and lift his eyes. And in 1 Kings, we just read some of it just a moment ago, but Solomon, in the beginning of his dedication, he, it says that he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keeps covenant and mercy with your servants, or who walks before you, uh, who, who walk, um, your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So I'm sure as he's lifting his hands, to heaven, he's not looking at the ground. <laughs> he's addressing the one. He's lifting up his eyes to heaven. So let me just state the obvious. You know, um, why do people close their eyes when they pray? There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But it's, it's something that you know we we often think about. You know, why is it? I think part of it is perhaps to re- the reduce uh, the feeling of being uncomfortable. I mean, think of how weird it would be if I'm praying to God and I'm looking at Aiden and I'm like, God, you are so awesome. Your majesty is so wonderful. You are just incredible. Lord, I love you. You know, and so when I'm looking at him, he's going to get really uncomfortable as I start to extol his majesty. I mean, there's majesty to extol there, but you know, I'm I'm only kidding. But, but you know, but when I do it, I I look, I, I, I can close my eyes and, or I can look up. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care about your, your position when you pray. He doesn't care if your eyes are open or closed. But culturally, we tend to close our eyes, and there's nothing wrong with that, because sometimes I'm in a room and there are distractions, and there's times where I need to close my eyes because I need to really think about who it is that I'm speaking to. 
and then I can, wor- I can worship him, I can talk to him, and I'm, I'm focused. And I, sometimes I need to do that, because if I open my eyes, there are all these distractions wherever I'm at. All right? And so, there, again, there's no, this is not a big deal. It's just something to be aware of. And you may notice from time to time that when I pray up here, I have my eyes wide open. Don't let that creep you out. You know? So it's a, I think it's a church tradition, and it's not a bad tradition. You've got to do what you've got to do to stay focused. That's the main thing. And for heaven's sake, keep your eyes uh, open and on the road when you're going on 490. Okay? So pray with your eyes open. And also, if you're uh, using any heavy equipment, John, you know, uh, if you're using any heavy equipment at work, make sure you keep your eyes open. You know, <laughs> so we don't want to close our eyes, but we can do that. We can pray to God at any time. But notice he says, the Father, Father, the hour has come. Notice that in verse 1. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. You know, there was a time when it wasn't Jesus' hour. And we've been through this before. There was a time when it wasn't his hour. And then there was a time that it was his hour. And obviously Jesus is not speaking about a physical 60-minute hour, but rather an indeterminate period of time that really spanned, really, the last week of his life before his crucifixion. Jesus, in John 7, verse 30, it says, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 19, John chapter 8, verse 19, the Pharisee, speaking to Jesus, says, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father, and, and, and if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And these words spake Jesus in the treasury and he taught, as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. This was earlier in his ministry. But there was a time when his hour would come. And, uh, and we will see that in John chapter 13. Where it says now, and this is the very, the very night that Jesus would go into where he would be with his disciples in the upper room, you remember. And he was there with them. And it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then here in John 17, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. This time, this time period of when all things are going to come to pass. The things that have been prophesied. And he says, verse 2, back in our text, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Yes, the God the Father has given Jesus, his son, authority over all things. That's, that's really encouraging to me because I need to know that he does. In Psalm 2, you know this. The Lord said to me, you are my son. And this is a Psalm of David written a thousand years before Jesus would even be born. And here it's prophesied that Jesus, the very son of David and yet David's Lord, David would make this prophecy He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is going to have authority and dominion over all of the earth. 
When he comes back, all dominions, all rules, and all uh, kingdoms are going to be submitted to him. He's going to crush them all, and he is going to be the authority. In Psalm 24, what does it tell us? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and all those who dwell therein. It all belongs to him, and it will rightfully be his in the millennium. And in Matthew 28, what did Jesus say to his disciples before he ascended to heaven? We call it the Great Commission. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love that. Isn't it nice to know that in amidst all the chaos, you can rest in Christ? The world around us doesn't have that. They don't believe that. And therefore, their lives, I mean, you know, even as Christians, our lives can get really, really out of whack and can get really crazy. But think about it, what it must be like for an unbeliever who doesn't have the scripture and doesn't know Christ and is not born again. Think of the trouble that would be for the soul. The only thing that's really settling me and keeping me on without going schizo is the fact that I read in the scripture what's coming. And so when I see those things start to happen, and believe me, they're happening if you got your eyes open. When I see those things happening, my heart is, even though I, uh, it's unsettling, I, I know what's the end game. Do, do, do you understand? And so you have a, an anchor for your soul. You're not just out there in the world. I can't imagine what life would be like now not having Christ in my life. I would probably be finding my solace in the bottom of a bottle I'd probably be finding my solace in maybe some kind of drug to to kill the pain and the uncertainty and the fear. But thank God he's gotten a hold of us. And he's got a hold of us. And we thank you, Jesus, for that. But notice what he says at the end of verse 2 there, that he should give him, give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That God the Father would give to Jesus And Jesus gives eternal life to as many as God the Father has given him. We've seen this in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And Jesus, speaking to Martha, you remember in John chapter 11, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. He is eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Do you know Jesus this morning? He wants you. He wants you. He loves you. He created you. Before you were in the womb, he formed you and knew you. He spoke that to Jeremiah, and and we're no different. God has, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knew exactly we would be here today. He knew we would be in America here in 2020 at Browncroft Corners. Or actually, it's not Brown, it's Calvary Corners, hallelujah, forgot it's that's the way it used to be but yeah so he knows and he wants us he wants you will you give yourself to him will you give your heart to christ notice in verse three back in our text he says and this is eternal life 
that they may know you, the only true God, and notice, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So notice again what Jesus is saying here. Again, he is equal with the Father, and that's really the theme of the Gospel of John, isn't it? Isn't that what it says in John 20 at the very end, near the end of of this book? It says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And the Apostle John, who wrote this, also had some very strong words for those who only believe in God but don't believe in Jesus. You can't have it that way, folks. You can't say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in this Jesus character. I don't care about him, but I believe in God. Well, it doesn't work that way. You can't get to heaven. That's why Jesus said, there's no other name under heaven given by men whereby men must be saved, but by the name of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through him, except through Christ. What does it tell us in John's uh, first letter? He says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the anointed, the Messiah, who is equal with God. The rabbis knew that. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Notice this in verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either, but he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Do you understand what that means? You can't just say, I believe in God, and and think that God is going to accept you. Because you can say, oh, I believe in God the Father, but I don't believe in Jesus. And you will stand before God, and he will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Because the only means of salvation, the only one who is holy, the only one who is righteous and perfect is my son. And he paid the price for you on that cross. His blood, the very blood of God, was shed in my place. I deserve to be there. I deserved eternal punishment. But Jesus took that punishment for you and I. And therefore, he is accepted. And then we also are accepted if we are in him. And how do you be in him? You simply believe everything that Jesus said he was, said about himself, everything that he said. You, you ask him into your life. You ask him to forgive you of your sins. Have you done that this morning? Have you done that? Have you asked him to forgive you? And keep asking him, Lord, forgive me for my sins. If we are, what does it tell us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10? If we, if, if we are, um, if we sin, We can ask for forgiveness, and he will be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice, back in our text now, in verse 4, it says, Jesus says, I have glorified you, God, his Father. I've glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And this is interesting, because Jesus, his heart and mind were already settled that he was going to finish the work of redemption for mankind by being crucified on the cross. Remember what he said on the cross. He said, it is finished. To tell us day I in the, in, the, in the Greek, and it means the, the, the price has been paid in full. There's no other debt that needs to be paid. I paid that price, Jesus says, and there's no other debt. And that is the greatest thing, folks, all of us must understand and receive into our hearts is to know that our sins have been forgiven. Because without it, we would be hopelessly lost and we would not enter heaven. But Jesus paid that price. He said it is finished. It's finished. And verse 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had. Notice, with, notice this. is really interesting. 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So that means that before Genesis 1 verse 1, Jesus was present with the Father. Hey, wait a minute. I thought that he came through the Virgin Mary. Yes, he did, but it's called the pre-incarnate Christ. He always lived before he was incarnate in human form. He always existed with the Father. It tells us that, right? In Genesis chapter 1, what does it tell us? In the beginning, God, the, the Hebrew word is Elohim. It speaks of a plurality. But it's speaking of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was in the beginning with God, and, and, and all things were made through him. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. In the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth. All three of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, were involved in the creation process. And then in John chapter 1, we see the wonderful verse that we know and love so much. I love this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So in the beginning, before anything was created, this whoever this Word is, and we know that the Word is the Greek is the Logos, it's Jesus Christ, because it tells us in John's 14th verse in that first chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we know who that is. It's Jesus. But all things were made through him, and without him, what nothing that was made was made. And so he always existed. The glory that I had, Father, with you before the world was, he, was, he always existed. That's a wonderful thought. I love to get carried away with that. And he says, I have manifested. And notice now, Jesus takes a break from praying for himself. And now for the next um, verse uh, 6 down through 19, he's going to be praying specifically for his disciples. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. Aren't you glad that, you're, that you belong to him? There's an ownership there, isn't there? I'm so glad to be owned by God. Because I, I was owned by Satan for a long time. He had me, and I was just a puppet. And he had me, but he doesn't have me anymore. And he doesn't have you anymore. You may be struggling, but he doesn't have you anymore. All he can do is tempt you and try to mess up your life. But guess what? You're heaven-bound, Christian. If you're a believer, Satan can't take you anymore. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Did they keep it perfectly? No, they didn't, but they did ultimately come around. They were a little slow like you and I, and I like that because I, I qualify. So now you have known, now they have known, verse 7, that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We saw this in the very previous chapter in John chapter 16. You might want to put a, a footnote in verse 8 here and just put in uh, John 16, 25 through 30, because that's really when the light bulb started to go off with the disciples. It started to go off for them. And you can read that on your own. But basically Jesus, um, well, let me just read it to you. These th and this is John 16, verse 25. And we looked at this last week. But they're finally getting it. It's just taking some time. And maybe you're in that same place of, 
It's going to take some time. You know, the, when, when I first heard the gospel, it took a while for it to kind of sneak up on me. And that's really what I felt like. I, it was like, a, for, for me, it was a, a gradual thing until the moment when God just said, okay, you've heard enough. I've told you, I've had people sharing with you, Rob, for years, and, and, and now there was like the decision time. And that took a moment. That was in an instant. But prior to that, I was being, God was grooming me in a sense. He was trying to woo me to get my interest and show me the truth about who he is and who I was. And boy, there's such a big difference between the two of us. <sighs> and, and by the way, there's a big difference between you and him too. But... He's the intermediary, right? He's the one who saved us. But notice, these things Jesus said in John 16, I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Because in that day you will ask my name, ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, because he won't need to, because when we are in his kingdom, in the millennial reign, we will see him face to face. Jesus won't need to be praying for us, because we can ask right then and there. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father, and his disciples had a eureka moment. And then they said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. So his disciples were continuing to understand, and that's a good thing. And that's really what our life is all to be all about, too. You know, when we come to Christ, it takes time. We're growing in our understanding and knowledge of him. And he's okay with that. And some people are further along than we are, and some people are behind us. But you know what? We're all together, and we're in it together. So encourage one another in that, you know? And, and, and don't look at each other and, and be competitive. In the world, there's a lot of competition, but in the kingdom of God, there doesn't need to be that because we're all going to be at the same place, and we're all going. Notice in verse 9, I pray for them. He's speaking to his father. I pray for my disciples. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And by reading this statement, you may get the impression that Jesus doesn't really love anyone else other than, his, other than his disciples, but that is not the truth. Because we can't take this verse out of context from the rest of the Bible and the rest of the Gospel of John, because what did it tell us in John 3.16? Yes, he's praying for his disciples and not the world, yes, but what did he say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world the people in the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish or have, but have everlasting life. So he does. But right now, specifically, he's praying for his disciples. But he loves those in the world too. Otherwise, he wouldn't have died for them. See, everyone has an opportunity to come to Christ and to be saved, but God and his omniscience knows who is going to believe in him. And don't let that stumble you, because if you are concerned about this, receive Christ and stop worrying. 
Give your heart completely to him and be saved. Begin to enjoy the life with him now and have the assurance of salvation because it is biblical and it's right because the Lord desires you to have that assurance. And there is peace when you do so. And then we just continue to abide in him. Continue to abide in him. Notice in verse 10, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Keep through your name. That's a great name, isn't it? Because when Jesus prays this prayer... It is a prayer that the Father will hear. And he's going to answer the prayer of the Son. And I find that wonderful because do you have the assurance of salvation? Because you can have that assurance. We need to abide in Christ. And the more we abide, the more, assurance, the more assured we're going to be. But if I call myself a Christian and yet I'm living in a way that looks like the world, the world is going to look at me and go, who are you? And then the devil is going to say, who are you? And then you're going to start to wonder, who am I? And so I need to, I need to get into the game. I need to start listening and I need to start yielding to the Spirit of God and start waking up. And listening to Jesus, being obedient to him. And I can't do it alone, and I'm going to fail. But here's the thing. If we do that, he, he's going to take care of us. He's okay with the, with the stumbling walk that we make. Just get going. Don't stay in one place and don't get fatalistic. Because he wants to give you that assurance of salvation. And that is a beautiful thing to have the assurance that you are going to heaven. Even with all of your sin and your mistakes and your flubbing around, he understands and God is working in you. Continue to keep your eyes on him and resist those things and receive that assurance because if you do, you're going to have this. You're going to have a big smile on your face. It's going to be all right. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Notice Jesus said in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, and those you have given me I have kept. In these first two sentences, Jesus sounds like the shepherd that we know that he really is. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In John uh, 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Are you hearing the voice of your Savior, your shepherd king, Jesus Christ? My sheep, Jesus says, they hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And notice, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There's the assurance again my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand I and my father are one do you have assurance oh yes because in, in Christ there is no one who can snatch you out of his hand I like to see him try there's no one no one big enough no one bad enough there's no power in the universe 
that can take you out of God's hand if you're in his hand. But the question is, are you in his hand? Are you one of his? And he goes on and he says, those whom you have given me I have kept. Notice, the good shepherd keeps his sheep. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Paul the apostle by the spirit gave this title also to the Antichrist who will be coming shortly onto the stage, on the world stage. Speaking of the Antichrist, Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And so Paul is uh, equating this phrase, son of perdition, with the Antichrist, who is going to be a man, a a politician more, more than likely, who is going to be literally possessed by Satan himself. And don't think that he's going to walk around all ugly and, you know, and, you know, spitting green pea soup and his head spinning around and all that stuff. No, when he's possessed by the devil, he's going to be the swiftest, smoothest operator you've ever seen. He's going to, he's going to walk just rightly. He's going to speak all languages. He's going to look at the woman and women and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, he's so wonderful. And the guys are going, wow, this guy is so charismatic. He's got all the right words. He can speak. He's got all the right degrees. He went to Yale. He went to Oxford oh my goodness, the guy, he looks great. He's dressing great. He just looks like, wow. Everything I don't want to be is in him. Yeah. I don't think he's going to be like what we think. And good news is that we won't be here to see him. But the world is going to fawn over him and they are going to go after him like a thirsty dog to a pond. They're going to go after him. I like this because when Jesus said this in verse 12, Judas had already left the disciples. He left the group when they were in the upper room to continue his treachery. And so, so much for Calvinism. Calvinism says, well, you know, uh, God is sovereign completely and God knows who's going to come to him and everybody else is damned to hell. They don't have a, a choice in the matter. But let me ask you this. If God was only sovereign and man had no choice in the matter of his salvation and his course of life, then why was Judas Iscariot even chosen to be among the twelve in the first place when God the Father and God the Son knew he would eventually betray Jesus? That's one for the Calvinists to sort out. The Lord knew who Judas was when he chose him, but yet he chose him. And why is that? Because Judas had the same opportunities to believe and to receive Christ like the rest of them, but his own heart, he would not. And he was the only one out of Jesus' fold, out of all those 12, he says only one is lost, the son of perdition. And it's not because Jesus didn't give him the opportunity. It wasn't somehow written in the books to where Judas had no opportunity. No, Jesus gave him every opportunity up to the very end to receive him. In fact, even in the upper room, you remember, he made him the guest of honor. That's where Judas was seated, right to the left of Jesus in that triclinium. That was the place of the guest of honor. And Jesus made him the guest of honor that night. And that man, out of his own heart, his own decision, he chose to betray Jesus Christ. He had every opportunity, just like Peter and John and the rest of them. But he would not. He would not. But he had every opportunity. And God knew this. And yet, he chose him to begin with. He chose him. Jesus, (laughs) what does it tell us? uh, Jesus, in John chapter 6, Jesus answered them, and he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. And even in the Old Testament, there were scriptures that prophesied of a man who would come alongside Jesus and betray him. And we know his name now. The Bible didn't tell us his name, but it was certainly Judas. In Psalm 41, David says, Even my own familiar friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse, beginning in verse 15, it says this. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and this was around the day of Pentecost, although the number of the names was about 120, and he said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Yes, David prophesied, in the spirit, prophesied of Judas. And Peter says that right here. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David, a thousand years before it happened, by the way, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gush out. That's kind of nice right before lunch, isn't it? And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is now called in their own language, and in their own language, a keldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and here it is. Let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. And so Peter is quoting from Psalm 69, speaking of Judas. And then he goes on and he says, And let another take his office or his bishopric. And that was and that was his his order, his 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 being an apostle, and that was in Psalm 109, verse 8. So Judas was following his own heart. God just had the wonderful advantage of being omniscient and omnipresent. But now I come to you, Jesus said, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I have given them your word, Jesus says to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Yes, this sounds very reminiscent of that model prayer in Matthew chapter 6 where it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Same thing here. And he goes on and he says, these are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So verse 17, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Literally purify or consecrate them. Set them apart from the world and unto me. That's what sanctification is. To be set apart from something and set apart to something. And folks, we're in either one of those two camps. You're either set apart to the world or you're set apart to Christ. But we as Christians, oftentimes we like to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And you're going to be a miserable Christian if that's your experience. I would encourage you to make the step, to take the step and get fully in and forsake those things of the world. It doesn't mean that you have to quit your job and you have to you know, divorce your wife. And No, you have to live in the world, but the, you're not supposed to be of the world. <laughs> Think of how long it took God to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It took them just a couple of months to get them um, out of Egypt. Or actually one night, actually. But it took them 40 years to get the world out of them. And it still wasn't complete. The world was still in them. And yet he delivered them. And, 
And the same is true for us, and we need to forsake those things and get fully in. I would encourage you to just make your calling and your election sure because the Lord loves you. There's no better time than the present. No better time than the present. And notice what it says in verse 18, and you have sent me into the world, and I have also sent them into the world. And again, we see this in the Great Commission. We already looked at this, that you know to go into all the world and to make disciples. But notice in verse 19 now, he says, and for your sakes, I, and for their sakes, excuse me, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified, what? By Fox News? By Dan Bongino? By Joe Rogan? No. Sanctified them by the truth. Remember, he said, your word is truth. Jesus, being our example, he does first what he asks us to do. He says, I have sanctified myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. See, the other religious gurus in the world, they will tell you, do as I say, but just don't do as I do. Do what I tell you to do, even though I'm not doing it. No, Jesus says, no, do what I tell you to do, and I'll show you how to do it. I'm going to do it, and I want you to follow me. (laughs) That's what a good shepherd does. A bad shepherd would say, yeah, go out in the middle of the stream. I know it's raining, and it's about ready to flood and everything, but, you know, you go out, and then I'll follow. That's the world's leader's. That's the world's religious leaders. The sheep get sacrificed for the guru who needs his house in Palm Springs. But God says, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to lead by example. And ultimately, I'm going to lead by example right to the cross and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. And therefore, you ought to die to yourselves. We don't literally need to physically die, but we need to die to our passions and our lusts and those things that we know aren't good in the Bible that separate us from God, that fellowship. And so finally in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also, and here's the break, and here's for all believers. Here's the next section of where we're going to finish up here in just a few moments. Jesus says, I don't pray for just my disciples now alone, but also, notice, for those who will believe in me through their word. (laughs) You notice that? This is us. That's every one of us in this room. Everyone who's sitting in a church in America and in the world right now, this is what he is speaking of. I do not pray for these alone, these 12 or these 11 here, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to go back in some kind of family tree? You know, I know the man who led me to Christ, but I wonder who led him to Christ. And then, you know, the person or the people responsible for speaking truth into him that caused him to be, to give his heart to Christ. And it all goes back and, you know, folks, if you trace your spiritual lineage going backwards, it'll take you right to the apostles. It'll take you right back to the 12. It will. It'll take you right back there. And you and I are the beneficiaries of their ministry. And so then it behooves us then to continue on this ministry. It can't stop with us. And that's why God has given us the command, the, the Great Commission. Go and teach them. And, and baptize them, make disciples. In order to make a disciple, they got to come to Christ first. But then teach them, make them disciples, and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. 
And so verse 21, he says, and that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be also one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice again the unity and the oneness that we have with the Lord, with the Father, and with one another. I don't know about you, there's no greater feeling, no greater family. You know, you think about how many people today are without their family, and maybe they have broken homes or, or, or disjointed homes or you know, houses that are broken up, which is most families. And yet people who, whose mother and father have forsaken them or family members that have forsaken them have found a home and have found a big family in the church. And they feel they, they belong because they've got the father, they've got the son, they got the Holy Spirit, they got all of us, and they feel like they belong. They're no longer the, the, the shoe that doesn't fit. No, they're, they're very much into the family of God. Have you found that? I pray that you do. I pray that our fellowship would even become more like that. That we would reach out to each other and really encourage one another and love each other, regardless of all the problems that we have and our personality quirks. I mean, that happens. But, you know, to love each other in spite of those things. And instead of seeing people as enemies and, oh, she's, there's something wrong with him. Instead of being an antagonist, why don't you pray for them and be an intercessor and be their friend? Instead of being their enemy. You know how many churches break up and how many people, there's problems in churches because of our immaturity? I'm not saying that you are immature. I know I have been immature. And at times, my wife can attest to this if she's watching online. Um, I have been immature too. You know, every now and then I'll just, I'll, I'll do something that's just, what's wrong with you? Well, many things, too much to m- mention right now, right? But that's the thing, the oneness, the unity, and we can have that in Christ, and we have that here, and I pray that it only continues. Love each other. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? Love each other. Have compassion on one another. So, and then Jesus goes on in verse um, 22, and he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are, and I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in love, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have gave me... that Excuse me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? Right now, where is he? He's in glory, isn't he? He ascended 40 days after his resurrection. He ascended into heaven. And what did he tell us in John 14? And this is what he told them. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, guess what? I will come again. That's a promise that he has made. He is not going to leave us here on the earth while all hell breaks loose, while God is going to be judging this earth, which is coming soon, by the way. He's not going to leave us to experience his wrath. Are we going to experience persecution before then? I believe we are, and we're already seeing it. Don't let it surprise you. But there is a point, there is a time when he is going to come, and we are going to be caught up. The dead in Christ will receive a new body. They will ascend with new bodies into the air to meet the Lord in the clouds. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up and changed in the twinkling of an eye, and forever we will be with the Lord For seven years, we're going to be up with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
while all hell on earth is happening. When the floodgates come and the Antichrist is revealed and the wars and the the pestilences and God's wrath poured out on a world that has rejected his only means of salvation, yes, and they will be worthy of it. And it breaks God's heart that they are going to be that way. But guess what? As much as God's love is, his wrath is also the same. He loves immensely. He He did everything for us. He would do anything for you, and he has, but there are people who still, and it blows my mind why somebody would, you know, after all that God has done, could just put their fists in the air and say, I will not. It's madness. It's madness. No, I like my sins so much. I like the needle hanging out of my arm. I like, you know, messing up my family and sleeping around with a bunch of different people. And I love the destruction that's in my life. I love the, 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 all the stuff that's happening in my body and the diseases and the, the mental, you know, I'm just freaking out. I got to take drugs to make, you know, to get through the day. Why would you want that? Haven't we had enough time in the world? Isn't it time that we say enough? (laughs) You know, by the time I was 24, I had lived enough sin and rebellion in my life that I realized it's not all what it's cracked up to be. The devil promised me a whole bill of goods and he, sin is pleasurable for a season. Bible says that. But then the bill comes. Then the despair comes. Then the heartache comes. And the disgrace and the guilt and then the pain and the destruction. That's the bill that has to get paid. And we can't pay it. Jesus paid it. Come to Christ. He goes on in the last two verses here. He says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, notice, your name, and will declare it, that the love with with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. We are one in Christ, and we are one with the Father, and guess what? We are one with each other because of Christ, of what he's done and what he's doing in your life, in our lives together. Aren't you blessed? Aren't you blessed? Hallelujah! Yes. You know, love him. You know, yeah. You know, give your heart again. Just, if you're here this morning or you're listening or watching online or whatever, change today. The The Lord is knocking. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Will you accept? Will you open that door? Or will you, like the people in Revelation, when all hell is breaking loose, are you going to be one of those to stand up and say, I will not have this man rule over me, and I'm just going to do my own filthy you know, heroin addiction. I'm going, to, I'm going to continue in this way because it's the only thing that makes me feel good. And that's where the devil has got them. And God wants to set them free. Are you going to be like that? Or are you going to say, you know what, I've had enough. It didn't take me very long. I respond to pain really well. Whenever something is happening in my body even, where I'm really starting to feel pain, I'm the first one to run to my knees and say, Lord, what's going on? <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. Even if I didn't do anything wrong, or even if I, I'm not sure of what I did wrong, I, I'm going to go to him and say, Lord, is this a result of my, my stupidity? Have I done something? And if not, Lord, I, I get that, and maybe it's just you know, part of life, and it is. But run to him. Have enough. Have enough of it. Give your heart to Christ today. And if you 
have not given your heart to Christ today, would you please come? You don't have to come up and, and, and have, have somebody pray for you. You can do it in the privacy of your own will, but do it today. Give your heart to Jesus. He, he's praying for you. He's been praying for this very moment, this day. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. All you've got is today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Today is the day. And for those of you who have known Christ for a long time, continue to draw close. Continue to draw close to him. And let him love you. Let him heal you. Call out to him. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this prayer of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you're praying for us even right now. And Lord, there are some in this room or in the hearing of this message, Lord, that you, your heart, you, you've touched their heart. And Lord, help us to not take these moments like that for granted. Lord, may we run quickly to you. I pray for every hurting heart, every heart that's broken for various reasons. Would you please touch that broken heart? Would you please touch that soul that's in despair and has no hope? Would you do that today, Lord? And Lord, I pray you'd bless my brothers and sisters. I pray that you'd fill them to overflowing. Fill them with your spirit, God. Give them a purpose. Give them a, an unction from you, Lord. Just bless them today, God. And all throughout this week, encourage them. Keep them, Lord. Keep them as the good shepherd that you are. Keep us, Lord, in your fold. Keep us healthy. Make us healthier than we are. Keep us dependent upon you, Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.